Hello and welcome to the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast series. This series has been developed to assist you to master your health and well-being. Health is too hard when you try to go it alone, and we know that together we are healthier. Today on the show, we'll be discussing resilience in children and teenagers with clinical psychologist Andrew Fuller. Andrew has worked with over a 1,000 schools and more than 500,000 young people. He's a fellow of the University of Melbourne, has been a scientific consultant on the ABC, as well as written more than eight books on the topics of parenting, resilience and identifying strengths for young people. So Andrew Fuller, welcome to the Healthier Together GMHBA podcast. Great to be here, Simon. So, Andrew, how did you become interested in building resilience in children and teens? I uh, started out my career in psychology in crisis teams, uh, trying to be on the top of bridges or in sieges where people were in dire circumstances, and that got me interested in how do you stop people getting to that point, really. And uh, that led me then to think about, well, uh, this concept of resilience that we'll talk about today. And then that then led me to think, well, how do you kind of get access to whole group of young people and of course that's in school so um, obviously if we can help people to feel better about their lives while they're children and adolescents then the likelihood that they are not going to get to that situation as adults is is much more probable. Can you explain what resilience... So we all have resilience it's something that's innate to some degree. Um, The way I like to define resilience is it's the happy knack of being able to bungee jump through the pitfalls of life. So when all of us face obstacles, times of difficulty, lowered mood, you know, just tough days, it's what helps us to get our act together and rise above it. And that's, of course, a combination of things within ourselves, so things like self-esteem and self-regard and looking out for yourself, but it's also, of course, accessing people around you who can support you, who can kind of help you to kind of talk things through. Sometimes it's about other activities like going for a run or dancing or singing, but it's starting to think about how can we all basically move beyond that time, because I don't think anyone gets through life without some times of difficulty and times of setback. Nothing always works to plan. It'd be nice if it did, wouldn't it? But uh, it doesn't. And so we then need to think about how can we pick ourselves up at those times. That's resilience. What are the warning signs that our children and teens may not be resilient enough? Well, there's a couple of things I think that are particularly on the horizon. One is that the way people these days tend to view when they make mistakes. So Mistakes really, I mean, it's hard to learn from your mistakes if you don't make any. And so in a way, in fact, I've learned so much from my mistakes, I'm, I'm going to plan on making a whole lot more. So that's, that's going to be interesting for me. But <laughs> it's, in fact, I'm good at doing that. Um, so it's about then thinking, well, how, how are mistakes viewed? Are they viewed as a kind of uh, a measure of my capacity or my capability or my intelligence or my personality? Or are they seen as a beginning? And so I think it's important that we all really try to help everybody to see that, yes, inevitably, part of being a human is to make mistakes and part of learning how to live life better or to relate to other people better is about learning from those mistakes. So mistakes aren't bad things, they're learning opportunities. Sometimes we regret them, but we don't want to basically get to the point where we feel so ashamed of it that we either blame somebody else for the mistake or we blame ourselves eternally for it. And that's sadly the case sometimes. Can you explain the ways we can help to foster and build this in children and teens? Sure. So um, in all of the research that I've done, 
and certainly over 200,000 young people, three factors predominate. And that's, so I looked at about 600 communities around Australia and looked at those that were resilient and those that weren't and schools that were and schools that weren't and families that were and families that weren't and and uh, kids that were and kids that weren't. And three factors really stood out. That basically we all thrive in terms of resilience when we connect with one another, when we protect one another, when we feel safe with other people and when we respect one another. So if you like the CPR approach to this. So if we can connect, protect and respect one another, then we all have a chance of doing much better. It's when we have a sense of disconnection. And of course, we live in a world that leads to disconnection, partly through social media. I mean, it's a mixed blessing, but often we, we distance ourselves, we retreat to our phones, we you know, look for other ways to basically meet some of those connected connection needs. The sort of protection of one another, I guess there's a, a perception that we live in a world that is risky, even though the stats are a bit questionable about that. In fact, the stats say we've never lived in a safer time. People obviously don't feel as safe. And that's, a, that's an interesting conundrum to kind of think about. How do we help people, particularly kids, to feel safe in a world that's different? And how do we help them to have a sense of opportunity to capitalise on the good things in the world? And the third part's, of course, respect. I mean, in a way... The relationships, particularly between teachers and students and parents and children, has changed. And so it used to be, uh, when I was growing up, that there were sort of pep talks that would be given to kids. You know, come on, you can do it, all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't work anymore. I mean, kids don't believe it. I'm not sure whether I believed it much when I was a kid, but people don't generally Kids certainly don't believe it. And so um, really it's about how do we build and model that respectful relationship. It doesn't mean that parents can't be in charge or teachers can't be in charge, but it's how you do it that's important, that has a, a sense of respect. Otherwise, you get into blame and shame and that leads nowhere. Choosing a school is a big thing for, for parents. So when choosing a school, what should we be looking at that shows they support their students to build resilience? Well, what are this? I mean, in a way, I've visited so many schools now, I can almost smell the air as I walk through the door. So it's interesting. And you do walk into some schools where people are stressed, they're ragged, they're exhausted, they're time poor. They can sort of half listen to you, but they're too busy to really attend to you. And it's sad because, of course, the adults are worn out. And of course, you know, that's not their fault. It's just basically that's the culture of the place. And there are other places that I go to where it's almost as if the teacher's eyes smile at you. And so I reckon you can tell a great teacher because their eyes smile at you. It's a really kind of interesting, I know it sounds like a bizarre diagnosis, but it seems to be a, a good rule of thumb that basically when people are there and they're welcoming and they're alive and they're interested in new stuff. So... You know, great schools are interested in the things we don't know about. So the great discoveries of the future aren't going to come from the things we already know. They come from basically the things we don't know. And so when we're more interested in questions rather than answers and basically in curiosity rather than whether you're right or wrong, and when we're more invested in having a sense of aliveness rather than kind of just getting through, chugging through whatever we need to chug through, they're the signs, really, I think. And parents are astute people, and they will be able to, I think, sense that and sense what type of school fits to their 
child. So the research on different types of schools, and there's all sorts of stuff, but it keeps coming up with conflicting messages. You know, some people say single-sex schools are better than co-ed, but I always trust parents. I think parents will know the conditions under which their child will thrive best and be most resilient. And look, you know, if you get it wrong, and sometimes you do, or sometimes a place changes, I always recommend that, you know, you always consider moving. It's not, it's not the end of the earth to move schools. One of the things you've mentioned in the past is that it's important for parents to live life well and be good role models, as you just mentioned. Can you elaborate on what this means to live life well? Well, let's, let's take that back to the connect, protect, respect. So in, the, in connection, obviously, it means that the relationships that you have as an adult show children how to have good relationships. Now, all of us have friendships and relationships that don't work out 100% of the time. That's how it goes. But hopefully you've got a range of people that you interact with. Some of them are close friends. Some of them are sort of romantic or family members. Some of them are acquaintances. But how you treat those people shows your child how to treat a diverse range of people. And so you're looking at how can you broaden your social network, if you like, and make it richer all the time, because of course that's showing your child how to do that. Even if you're an introverted person, you can still have a rich diversity of connections. You may not want them for quite as long as the, uh, the extroverts, but that's okay. But at the same time, um, you, and you're willing also to acknowledge strangers. So it's how a parent, when they go around the town, sort of, you know, say hi to the, you know, the, the shop owner and say hello to the cleaning lady or whoever it might be that they pass by. Not everyone, but, you know, some. That makes a, a big, big impression. The other part is about how you connect your own learning strengths and your own abilities. Because we all have vulnerabilities, but we also have strengths. And it's easy to talk about your vulnerabilities. Oh, I'm not good at that. I was never good at that, you know. And we, we can all get into a kind of role of doing that. But everyone has some areas of strengths. And I think it's important for parents sometimes to say in front of kids, I'm really good at that kind of thing, you know. And I don't know whether you're going to be good at it. You might be good at something different. That's okay. But you'll be good at some stuff. And that's the stuff that you've got to work out for yourself. In terms of protecting, it's about looking after yourself and looking after your values, really, in terms of relationships. And so even you try to act in the same way, regardless, as much as you can, regardless of the circumstances, so that you become somebody who protects not only themselves, but their way of life a bit. Let me give you a quick example of that. I suppose, you know, most people have been to a nursery at some stage and bought a plant. And those plants often come with a sort of sleeve that says something like, I don't know, if you plant this plant in shady areas and give it lots of water, it's going to flourish. And if you follow it, pretty much, it'll work out. Um, we all, as human beings, have optimal growing conditions. And so there are particular conditions under which you thrive and other conditions you just hate, you know. And that's true. Some people are outdoor people. Some people hate being outdoors. Some people love big crowds, others hate it, you know. And it's part of life is about working out what your optimal growing conditions are and surrounding yourself as much as you can with them because that gives you that sense of network to, to bolster you. And the third, the third part's that ability to respect yourself, that you are someone of value. You know, you have a contribution 
to make. And thinking about, I mean, one of the things that I think people yearn for in their lives, children do it, but adults do it as well, is for their contribution to be acknowledged. People value that highly. So when, and it, you know, you don't have to be good at everything. Nobody is. But you've got to work out what your contribution is and make it. And that's that respect part. So the connect, protect and respect. We've heard it's important to set boundaries. But what is the best way to do this and how do we know how firm to make the boundaries? It's an interesting question. I think that in the last uh, last 20 years, often the parenting style has been, if you break a boundary, I will send you to your room as a sort of punishment, so time out. And increasingly I find that that doesn't work particularly well, partly because we know long term one of the biggest predictors of life success is the ability when you're upset to calm yourself back down. We call that emotional regulation, but it's essentially you get upset and you learn how to calm yourself down. And one of the things that's important then is to teach your child how to do that. And sometimes time in is much more powerful than time out. So one of the most powerful boundaries that is ever in place is not so much a punishment, but saying, you need some time with me now. And I'm not going to be mean and nasty. I'm not going to be angry with you, but you just need to sit here with me or we're going to go and do something and we're going to pull our way through this. We're going to calm you down. Because if I can teach you how to do that, that'll equip you for later on. And so... Partly, of course, there are little kids that you need to sometimes to distract by lifting them up or moving them. Of course, that's how it goes. You're not going to have a long-winded discussion with every child every time. But by and large, it's thinking, these are teaching moments. These are moments when I can help my child to learn to do something differently. And I can't do that if they're so hot-headed and fuming or feeling so punished that they're just resentful. So I need to think, how do I help that child to get into a better state? And then maybe I can say, you know, I was really uh, worried about you when you seemed so angry at your sister for doing whatever it was, or, or basically when you started to throw that rock or threatened to do so, that could really hurt someone. And I know you would probably feel very badly if you hurt someone. And so it's then the lesson comes later. So that if you try to do it in the heat of the moment, People can't hear. People can't hear the message. And so, particularly kids, but adults can't either. You know, if you've if got, well, if you've ever had a traffic incident where someone's cut you off and, you know, somebody says, sorry, but I'm rushing to the, the hospital, even if probably in those moments, you still can't hear it because you're fuming, you know. So, it's important to calm first. Now, I just want to go back to a point that you made earlier that self esteem is important for resilience. But how do you recognize? low self-esteem in children and teens? So we all have uh, the capacity to become avoidant. That's a bit difficult. I won't do that. This is dumb. This is beneath me. (laughs) I'm not going to have a go at that. I can't dance. Uh, I won't talk to that person because they won't like me. And so that timidity can be seen as sort of bashfulness and shyness, but it's often just fear, really. And so one of the things we all have to do in our lives is to break through the fear barrier to some extent. And it's interesting when you, and this is true for all humans, I think, when we change what we do, we change the way we view things. So often we think about 
changing people's attitudes and that will change their behavior. I actually work in the reverse way. So I try and get people to do something different and then essentially that will change the way they view people. I'll give you a quick example. I saw a guy in therapy, an adult, or a young man, young 20-something, and uh, he was absolutely scared of saying hello to people he didn't know. And he was just incidentally going to go on a trip uh, to New Zealand for a week. And I just made a request that he say hello to five people every day that he doesn't know. And he reluctantly <laughs> agreed to do this and to report back. And of course, you know, it didn't matter who it was and whether they sort of responded or not. It was just saying, hi, hi Simon, how are you? Um, or whoever it was. And, but that experience of just going through, that repetitive experience of just going up to people and going, hi, how are you? Or what similar stuff. Change, he could understand that he could do it. And he could do it regardless of whether the person was welcoming and polite in return or just ignored him and turned away. And so it was an amazing experience of just how you change what you do will change the way you view yourself. Now, what about kids that have trouble with social skills? How can parents help them to develop these? Is that a similar way to what you were just talking about with your with your 20-something patient? Yep, I mean, partly. I think that in a way... There is a, There are different stages of childhood, obviously, where we become more or less clingy. And so there's a kind of phase around, I don't know, probably about grade three, grade four, where you kind of want to go, you're my special best friend. If you leave the school, it's going to be hell, so don't leave. Yeah. You know, I'm scared. Um, and it's kind of nice. I mean, it's a nice sort of really close bonding. And, you know, we can think about that as a, it's such an intense time, that friendship stuff. Um, but a wise parent then says, it's great. You've got a really good friend. But don't stop there, you know, keep making good friends. Even if you're, you're happy just with this one, I want you to broaden out your world a bit because that's what I do. And you, hopefully you get to see me that as I'll do that as I wander around the town a bit, you know, because if I can do that, because as we know, you know, some friends, shims don't endure, um, others fall on hard times or, but you do need to relate to a whole range of people. And the more that you do that, the better. Now... Some kids who get really scared want to control things a lot. So they want to sort of know where are we going before we're going there or who are we going to see before we see that. And that's really anxiety in disguise because, of course, it's that I need the certainty so I'm not going to panic. And it's hard as a parent to do this because, of course, everyone wants their children to be happy. But in a way, that's the very moment when I try to get parents to be more spontaneous and to sort of say, come on, Simon, where are we going? Where are we off to? I'll tell you when we get there. And then we're going to go over here. Where? Who are we going to see? I'll, I'll tell you when we get there as well. Because increasing that kind of spontaneity in a family increases the sense that the child needs to trust the parent's judgment. See, successful children or successful childhood is simple because in a successful, well-functioning family, the children basically trust pretty much what the big girl or big guy says because they you know they know it's going to be okay and so in a way you have to kind of demonstrate that to kids you know you can rely on me i i said i was going to be back here by 3 p.m and i'm here you know i said i was going to bring home this and you know pretty much i have now no human's perfect there are times we slip up but okay i apologize i acknowledge that i didn't follow through with that but i really try to make a commitment that 
I will follow through with what I say, but that my words are worth something. Partly because I want to teach a child that their words are worth something, but also I want to teach them that planning is worthwhile. So if I become such an erratic parent that you can't really predict whether the, the fact that I said that I was going to be home and pick you up at 3 p.m., and I become incredibly erratic around that, what children learn is firstly that they can't trust, but planning becomes pointless because, of course, it's just, you know, who knows? It's a lottery. Um, and that then has a major effect in terms of life. You can't plan to get a project done at school. I can't, there's no point planning to have a career because, well, who knows what's going to happen? And people kind of shut themselves down, which is why consistency in parents is incredibly important. Consistency to their word. Because, of course, that's integrity, isn't it? And integrity is such a critical feature in life. Because we, I think, as human beings, um, so here, I'm, here I suppose what I'm saying is the, the most powerful way to teach resilience isn't by a single lesson, it's through the relationship that you form with your kids, really. And so integrity is something that all of us yearn for. We yearn for it in each other. And I think humans have got an incredibly sensitive um, sense for basically loss of integrity. So we, if somebody basically lets you down or you, you feel they're a bit dodgy or they can't be relied on, we pick that up really quickly. And I think also the other part of integrity is when you let yourself down. So if I think about some of the most people who've been most sort of shamed and depressed in the world of therapy that I've seen, it's when they, and we've all done it to some extent, but when they really seriously let their own standards down, they, they had lost their integrity and did something that they really feel awful about later on. They're probably our worst moments in our lives. What's the effect of separation or divorcing parents on resilience? Is it a matter of how it's done or is it the act itself, the, the, the break? So um, a couple of things about that. The first thing is that we know that even in really dreadfully dysfunctioning families that aren't going real well, and we've studied those sorts of kids a lot, and they've pulled through, they've come through. And clearly what it tells us is having just one adult in your world who believes in you, who loves you, who basically you know, thinks you're fantastic, is enough. It'd be nice to have two, be nice to have plenty, but even just one. So when there's a separation and really one partner is not functioning well, it's up to the other person to carry that. Now clearly the best thing you could ever do for your kid is to realise they're only ever going to have one mum and one dad biologically. And so the best gift, of course, that you can give them is to treat that other parent really, really well. And that can be hard to do because, of course, it sometimes it means putting aside personal animosity and realising, OK, we may not get on as adults, but this is the only other parent you've got. And so if I basically put them down, what I'm doing is putting down a significant part of your relationship. And that relationship is important because, of course, the, the child's relationship with both men and women teach some different ways of socialising in the world. And so they're looking for how do men do it, how do women do it. And sometimes there's a lot of overlap, but at the same time, they're learning all the time. And if they learn consistently that one side hate the other or, you know, are disparaging about the other, guess what they do? They do exactly the same. They mirror that type of behavior. So I think 
in a difficult separation, and, you know, obviously that happens and it's sad and people feel angry and torn and resentful, it's important then to go and do some work with somebody so you clear it enough. You may not be, you know, okay, you know, cheery and gathering together for birthday parties and, you know, anniversaries, but you get through it enough so that you're not carrying it and inflicting it on your kids. Their world has to be different than your world. And that's a clear difference. You know, as, as parents and as adults, we have different business and different demands and responsibilities on us than kids should have. There's nothing worse than watching a child who feels responsible for their parents' breakup. So it's been referred to as the click-and-go generation. Can you explain what you mean by that and the, and the traits that are associated with this click-and-go generation? Well, I think we live in a world that's a bit click-and-go. I mean, we do. We treat people as a bit expendable. Oh, well, you know, didn't get on. Bye. Never talking to you again. Um, And we treat sort of moments as if they're a bit kind of, well, dispensable as well. And so one of the things that often happens is we can get so focused on just how things are now that we forget about looking forward to future events or appreciating the good things that have happened in our lives. So because of that kind of almost incessant need to be on with the next thing and on with the next thing, click and go, um, we can fail to appreciate. And so it's important, I think, for all of us in families and in lives, really, to think about, well, what are all the good things in your history that have happened? What's led to you being in the situation you are today? There's good things that have done that, and there, there are probably bad things that have done that as well. And, you know, it's weighing those both up and, and, and looking at them. What are the things in your life that you want to have more of in your future? And what are the things you want to have less of in your future? And how can you plan then to create that? Because, of course, we all create our futures to some degree. And if you don't have an active role in that, it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> but the problem is you won't have a say in it. And so starting to think about how you teach kids that, of course, is important as well. You know, what sort of person do you want to be? What sort of friend do you want to be? You know, what sort of, how do you want to be at school? How do you want to be in life? So these are much more important than what job you do, you know, because, of course, once you sort of have a stronger sense of yourself, you can do anything and probably be successful. But if you don't have that strong sense of yourself, you become a human chameleon and people then are a bit wary of you, you know, because they just go, I'm not quite sure where I stand with him. You know, he's sort of a bit kind of slippery character, even though he may not be. They pick that up and that sort of can sabotage your success. So how does instant gratification play into that concept? Well, of course, we would all love instant. I mean, I would love a world in which my every whim was basically catered for. Oh, that'd be fantastic. I can't think of anything (laughs) more delicious than to basically almost before I even feel the sensation of desire it to be fulfilled, you know. (laughs) What a marvellous world it would be. But I'd be a tyrant, you know. (laughs) And I couldn't tolerate delay at all. And so the idea of wait, of waiting, I mean, it's an important skill, isn't it, to learn how to wait. In a conversation, we have to do it, don't we? I have to sadly wait till you ask me a question before I can tell you an answer. It's a, it's a pain, <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and so if you, if you, and you probably had the experience of talking to people in conversation where they can't wait and you're being interrupted all the time and, you know, so it's not, not very pleasant. But also it comes back to that planning too, doesn't it? That you, essentially if you can't wait and plan for something good to happen, you can't plan for big things in your life. You can only plan for little 
little victories all the time. You can't basically go for the big picture stuff. And that's a great shame. And so delay is not just about basically waiting for little things. It's teaching them essentially to do... I mean, one of the great losses, I think, in, in life is lay-by. Lay-by was a wonderful thing. It's not around much these days, but the idea that you'd go and put some money down for a product that you wanted to purchase, and then finally when you'd paid it off, you'd pick it up. It was, it was a fantastic scheme because, of course, it taught people how to basically wait and anticipate something. And it was just terrific. But these days, people, of course, do it on a credit card and it's instant gratification. But it is good to save up for something. It's a good kind of discipline as well. So aside from bringing lay-by back, how can we (laughs) teach our kids to sit in that waiting period, to savour it? Well, I think you can involve them in planning. Uh, Depends on the age of the child, obviously. But you can involve them in planning family events or holidays or should we get a pet or not? Let's think about the pros and cons and talk about it. And for example, so, or should we change where we live and let's talk about it. And so involving kids in those discussions when they're, you know, you know, mid primary onwards is really important, I think. And so they can have a point of view and they can do some research, you know, and kind of come up with what they think is the conclusion around it. And that's, of course, modeling the very kind of delay and gratification because we need to do it thoughtfully. If we just basically give in to every impulse all the time, we make some incredibly bad decisions, don't we? We just If I'm just driven by my latest whim, I could spend a fortune on something that tomorrow I don't care about. That would be a, a waste. What are some key ways we can use to maintain a good relationship with our kids as they turn into teens? Well, part of the role of teenagers, of course, is to disparage parents. I mean, you, you want to look across at your parents and go, well, you're a pack of lunatics or a lunatic and I've basically, you're outdated and you know nothing and I basically, well, I'm going to carve a new way of doing it. And that's what adolescence is partly about. So you're not going to win all the time. <laughs> let's, let's just start there, okay? In fact, there'll be times when you think, you know, I know a whole lot about this area, but they're not going to listen to anything about it. Do you think my children who studied psychology would have asked me about psychology? No, never, (laughs) for example. Um, And that's okay. That's part of how it goes. But it's a disappointment for me, I can tell you. Um, So it's about saying, well, really, one of the big predictors of long-term mental health for us all are to have rituals in families and rituals in our lives. And they don't have to be big events. They can be small events. They might be, I don't know, Wednesday night we walk the dog or Sunday we have lunch together or Friday we get some popcorn and watch a TV show, whatever it is for you and your family. But holding some of those rituals or maybe just one once a week. Uh, so whether it's been a great week and we've all got on really well or it's been a hell of a week and we've had arguments all through the week, we still try and do that one thing because it's almost like a coming together, but it's also saying despite it all, we're still a family, we're still together and we basically try to do this as much as we can. And those are the things that later on kids continually say to me, mum always made sure we did, or dad always made sure we did. So they act a bit like the co-tooks upon which people hang the good memories of their lives. It's a very fascinating kind of process. Now, do you have a top three golden rules of parenting that you can share with us? Well, the obvious one, of course, is that one of the most powerful protective factors for children is the sense of belonging that they have in their families. And so essentially 
whatever happens, you belong here. You have a place in this family. You have a place in this house. You have a place in my heart. And for kids to have that as an unshakable truth is an important thing. In a world that wants to swirl us all around and change things and fake news and strange kind of attitudes and the shifting and turmoil of life, to have that certainty of here's a place I can go and open the door and they're going to say, great to see you, how you been, is an incredibly valuable thing. So it's being loved undeniably. You want, you know, you want your kid to basically know that you're their biggest supporter. You know, you might bury for a football team or something else, but you don't bury for them anywhere near as much as you do for your own kids. The second one really is to kind of, when things go wrong, and things are always at times going to go wrong, um, to think about how you treat misbehavior. Now, in a family, you want misbehavior to be the abnormal state, not the normal state. Okay. So one of the ways we have to think about it is treating it like it's the abnormal state. And that requires in families a shift of language from why to what. Now, obviously, we'll still use the word why, but when we use the word why a lot, it's often interrogative. Why didn't you do that? Why didn't your room clean? Why haven't you done your homework? You know, why did you hit your sister? Or why, you know, why haven't you finished that? And we'll all do some of that. But At times, what you really want to do is turn to kids when they're misbehaving and going, what's going on for you, Simon? What's what's happening? You're not normally like this. What's what's bothering you, you know? And then sometimes I I use an acronym of HALTS, which is, are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you stressed or sad? What is it? What's happening for you? And even if you don't ask those things literally or explicitly, uh, just thinking them gives you a more compassionate kind of response. And so you're seeing misbehavior not as a personal attack, more as a sign of pain or woundedness, that something's the matter and something's wrong and you've got something I need to attend to so I can fix it so we can get back to having a good time. And that's a different spirit in a family. Different spirit in a relationship too, isn't it? When people are out of sorts, how do I take the action to help you get back into that kind of good state? And again, that teaches kids themselves later on when they're feeling out of sorts, how to get themselves back into that. Because of course, there will be days of despair that every person has where their parents aren't going to be there to save them. And so it's a pretty, pretty critical school skill. And the third one is to be adventurous about life. I mean, really, we can all become despondent and we can all kind of be saturated with media and media is about shock and despair and kind of what's wrong and envy, you know, people who've got things better off. But really, it's about appreciating what's here and making the most of what's on offer. And I think we're all a bit guilty of it at times of not capitalising on the richness of our world. I mean, I am at times. You get busy and you get tired, of course. But having that time when you just go, right, we're really going to go and do a few new things or we'll try to eat a few different foods or we'll listen to some different types of music. or So you're keeping on expanding your world. You're seeing yourself as sort of partly exploring the frontiers of life rather than just doing the humdrum things over and over again. 
It's okay to do the things you like, of course, but at the same time, it's good to stretch your boundaries a bit because, of course, you want your kids who are entering a different world to stretch theirs, and they're not going to see that that's safe to do unless they see you do some of it. As we've discussed, parenting can be hard. Um, But what are some ways parents and carers can look after themselves and, in doing so, develop resilience? Lots of parents become a bit sleep-deprived, particularly if they've got pretty erratic kids. Obviously, when they're babies, you do as well. Um, So partly it's about how, ideally if it's a couple, but it's not always a couple, how you try to value the need for people to sleep well. Because if you're sleep-deprived, well, you're not thinking clearly, you're more emotional and so on. And so I would say that's almost the top of the list, really. Because if if you're not getting enough sleep, hard to function real well. You know, ask anyone, any parent who's yeah. basically had night after night a kind of sleep disturbance. It's a tough gig, isn't it? Um, it's then thinking about how do we try to divvy up the tasks a bit, you know. So in a, in a couple, of course, you, you're able to kind of go, okay, uh, would you look after them Sunday morning? And I'm going to, and then I'm, I'll have a bit of a rest. And then Sunday, Arvo, basically we'll, we'll swap. So we both get a bit of, you know, me time. <laughs> because that's pretty important. And then at the end of the day, we'll have some wee time and that'd be kind of good as well. Mm. Um, Otherwise, you just end up kind of giving, giving, giving and ending up exhausted. So it's good to have, I think, some time of the week when you can kind of reconnect with who you are as an adult and just do something for yourself as well. It's good for kids to see you do that too. You know, it's not that, you know, you're taking away from them. You're showing them that you value looking after yourself as well. And it's then I think it's about realising that nobody gets it right all the time. I mean... It'd be lovely to be a perfect parent, wouldn't it? It'd just be terrific. But of course, your parents, well, your your kids basically will, will wouldn't value that really anyway, um, and they wouldn't learn. I mean, part of part of our life is about imp- passing on how to handle the flaws within myself. Um, so it's partly it's about just learning that's going to happen. There are times where we all have done stuff, I think, where we regret and we're going, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. And it's time to make a heartfelt apology and to say, right, I need to fix that up with you. And that's a really useful lesson, isn't it, even though it's hard to do. I know you've written a number of books on parenting topics. Can you tell us what are the titles of some of these and and where can we find them? Yes, uh, so Unlocking Your Child's Genius is a a book that's... uh, is close to my heart. It's basically uh, the idea is that uh, within it, all every so we often think about genius as if people either are or are not geniuses. But what we've forgotten is the original concept of the people aren't geniuses; they have a genius. And part of the purpose of parenting and teaching as well is to draw out the inner genius within each person. And in fact, I've just set up a, a website called mylearningstrengths.com where kids can go on and analyse their learning strengths and get a personalised letter from me for free uh, that sort of says, Dear Simon, you're really good at this and this, but if you want to get better in the area, you have to develop, here's a way of doing it. So that kind of fits with that book as well, um, which is really exciting. So if you want to have a, a look at that and see if it's useful, that would be kind of fun. I've also written books on Tricky Kids, uh, which has been quite popular, about 20 languages that has been published in and translated into. So there's a lot of them worldwide and how you deal with those. And that's partly about thinking about the neurochemistry behind behaviour. So a lot of what dictates behaviour in families is not it's not thinking, it's more the habits and the neurochemicals running around their brain. And then I developed one called Tricky Teens, 
which was, again, obviously a target of that age group. And then because I really wanted to add in the third one, I did Tricky People because that's also about that. For adults themselves, I've written a book called Life, A Guide. Life, A Guide. And basically that's the old idea that, and it's permeated almost every culture that I know of, that about every seven years we need to reinvent ourselves. And so it, it's based on an interview of about 10,000 people that I interviewed and then asked them about what each stage of life requires of you to kind of be have a resilient life. And middle of next year, uh, a book comes out on romance called uh, CPR for Your Love Life. So uh, again, that connect, protect, respect, but uh, that'll be kind of fun. They're available in some bookshops, but they're also available you know, in the online stores as well. Well, Andrew Fuller, thank you for joining us on the GM HBA Healthier Together podcast. Thanks, Simon. It's been a delight talking to you. I appreciate it very much. It's a new dawn in health insurance because GMHBA are partnering with AIA Vitality to encourage us to be healthier by rewarding healthy choices. Join GMHBA V Plus with AIA Vitality to earn real rewards for health checks, exercising, even eating well. Changing how you think about health insurance for life. GMHBA and AIA Vitality. Healthier together.